You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Y'all don't need me to convince you this morning that humanity is still experiencing problems trying to live at peace. As much as people want and say they desire peace, we don't seem to know how to obtain it or how to sustain it. A couple of summers ago, I read Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, and there's one particular story that she tells in that book that stopped me in my tracks when I read it because it it connected to a particular family experience in the Ince household. You see, we were a swimming, uh, swim team family. Now, neither my wife or I are swimmers. Now, now I can swim, uh, but how many of you know there's a difference between being able to swim and, and being a swimmer, amen? We were that family, all four kids, swim team, summer swim league, and swimming year, year round, and, 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 and you know, always at the pool and throughout the week, five days a week, swim meets Lord Jesus, on weekends, chlorine. <laughs> and now, look, right? Swimming is not the most popular sport in the African-American community. All right, so... So when our oldest, when our oldest, when he got to high school, um, he, all of those hours in the pool during the week and on weekends had his, had his physique looking like he ought to be a linebacker or a tight end. And so all of his friends were like, you, you need to be playing football, swimming. What do you, you don't swim, man, you need to play football. And so he was, he was having this, you know, internal uh, uh, fight with himself of, do I stop swimming and, and play football? And, and I said, look, if you want to play football, play football, but not because other people told you don't swim. So he took this class, this research uh, methods class, his sophomore year in high school, where you get to research a particular subject the whole year, and then you present a project at the end of the school year. And I, we, me, my wife and I were just encouraging, well, why don't, you, why don't you do some research on swimming? So he focused his research that year on the history of African Americans in swimming. And in this research project, he went all the way back to the period of the transatlantic slave trade, and he, he, found, uh, um, he found records of, of enslavers who made notes about how well the, the, the blacks who lived close to the coast could swim. And, and he found out how when we got to these shores that, that swimming was, was outlawed uh, for, for black people because uh, masters and owners didn't want their, their, their enslaved Africans to to escape, and so they would even tell stories about how there's monsters in the water. They would, they would, they would push their, their, their African-American community as far away from the water as possible. He researched the development of pseudoscience where, where scientists would write that blacks are, are poorer swimmers than, than whites because of their thicker bone density. He would, he, he would found records how they wrote that you cannot have uh, integrated pools because black men won't be able to control themselves in the presence of white women. 
And, and he, he did some qualitative and quantitative research interviewing elementary school students about their views on, on swimming and found out that the gap is just as large today as it was back then. The incidence of, 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 of young uh, black children who, who drown is exponentially higher than their white counterparts. And so you get the black community embodying this thing, we don't swim. And so he titled his research paper, just don't touch the water. The history of African Americans in swimming. Now look, I told you it's a story Isabel Wilkinson told, and she tells of this account from 1951 in Youngstown, Ohio. This, this little league baseball team that won the city championship that year, and the coaches decided to take the team to the municipal pool to celebrate with a team picnic. And, and Al Bright was the only black player on the team, and, and he was met at the gate by the lifeguard who would not allow him to enter into the, the, the pool in, in spite of the pleading of his coaches and some of the parents. And the, the pool officials, what they did was they allowed they allowed them to set a blanket for Al outside of the fence so he could sit on the blanket while his teammates and the parents went inside and, and played. And from time to time, somebody would bring him some food and maybe sit with him for a few minutes. And after about an hour of this going on, uh, what happened is they, they eventually um, convinced the lifeguard to at least let him get some time in the pool before it was all over. And the lifeguard said, okay, yes, that's all right, as long as he, as he follows the rules that, that I set for him. And, and, and here were the rules. The, the whole pool has to empty. Everybody's got to get out. And he would lead Al and take a, had a little rubber raft and have him sit on the raft as about 100 people looked on. And he took him for one circuit around the water on the raft. And he kept saying something to him as he took him around the, the pool. You know what he kept telling Al? Just don't touch the water. Just don't touch the water. And when I read that, it stopped me in my tracks and I called my son Jelani and I said, Jelani, when you wrote your paper, did you know this story? And he said, no, I had never heard of it. He said, but that doesn't surprise me because the title of my paper just reflects the attitude that has existed from the period of enslavement onward. What's my point? We don't even know the things that make for peace in the daggone pool, all right? Our discontents are so deep that, that, that they are pervasive even in the simple thing of swimming and being in the pool. And I think we have been mostly disabused of the naive notion that steady advancements in technology and medicine and other areas of human progress will inevitably lead to the experience of greater peace among humanity. Jesus, at the end of, the pa of our passage, he laments, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Would that we, even now, 2,000 years after those words were spoken, the things that make for peace. But God hasn't left us without a witness. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ responds to this desire for peace and our skepticism about it actually being achieved by declaring that Jesus Christ is the king of peace. And he confronts us with the reality that peace only comes through him. Peace with God and peace among people are impossible apart from him. And in our text, we find Jesus Christ, the king of peace, drawing near. And he draws near in three ways. He draws near in control. He draws near receiving praise and rejection. And he draws near in sorrow. Those are our three points. Drawing near in control. Drawing near receiving praise and rejection. And drawing near with sorrow. Last week, Pastor Joel preached on uh, Luke chapter 9 and verses 51 and 56 where we're told that when the days uh, drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Well, those, dear, those days of, of drawing near have drawn even nearer. Indeed, they're, they're only days away. In verse 28, we find Luke tells us that Jesus was going ahead, leading the way up to Jerusalem. The events of our text take place during the Passover season, a period of time when the people of Israel came from all over the Roman world to Jerusalem to remember and celebrate the Lord's delivering them from slavery in Egypt. And so this time was always full of, of anticipation and expectation that God would again act on behalf of his people. And it's important to point out what Luke is referring to in Verse 28, by the words of these things, these things, when, when he had said these things, Luke tells us, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. The, these things that Luke is referring to is a parable of the ten minas that Jesus had just finished telling them about in verses 11 through 27. He told that parable, Luke says, in verse 11 of this chapter because he was near to Jerusalem and because the people supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. The point of that parable is that the kingdom of God was not coming as they had expected to. To Jesus was indeed the king of God's kingdom who comes in the name of the Lord and he's on his way into Jerusalem. But he's not coming to set up some earthly kingdom like they expect. The tension in the text is that they are looking for the one who will come and liberate them from the yoke of Rome and restore them to their former glory. The irony is that this period in history is known as the Pax Romana, the, the, the Roman peace, right? A 200-year period of, of, as historians will say, relative peace and tranquility and prosperity across the Roman Empire. But this, this peace, quote-unquote, was obtained and, and maintained by force and dominance. 
So Jesus is speaking to people who are looking for liberty from Roman oppression and the rule that they expected the king who comes in the name of the Lord to bring. And so here's Jesus preparing to enter Jerusalem, the the city of God, and at a time of heightened expectation. And Luke is building this anticipation for what's going to happen when he gets there. Jesus has told this parable and now is moving forward with his eyes fixed on Jerusalem. He knows that he's going there for one purpose and one purpose only. He's going there to die, to complete his work as a suffering servant. We know he's going there to die because we know the story. But don't forget that he knows it too, right? And he doesn't draw near to Jerusalem in fear. He doesn't draw near in fear as the the last week of his life begins. He draws near in complete control. The king exerts his control over the events that are about to take place. He tells his disciples where to go. Go to the village in front of you. He tells them what they'll find. When you get there, you'll find a a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. He tells them what to do. Untie it and and bring it here. And if anybody asks you why you're untying it, you tell them the Lord has need of it. And lo and behold, it is exactly as he says. He is the one who orchestrates the manner in which he will enter Jerusalem. He knows the significance of his riding on a donkey. He knows what Zechariah 9 9 says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of, uh, of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? He is preparation for his suffering, his preparation for the way in which he is going to bring about peace is not accidental. He is in complete control. The people in the text are responding to the events as they are are occurring, but Jesus is proactively orchestrating the events. Here's the deal. The Lord is in control. And that means that we're not, even if we want to be. See, you know, you and I think, we think that if if we we were running the show, if we had the kind of control that could orchestrate the events of our lives, we could actually bring about peace. I like to think that that if I could just get everybody in my house to do everything I say, the way that I want them to say it, do it, when I want them to do it, that there would be perfect peace in the end's household. I am deluded. If we were in complete control We would never have devised a plan that made the way to peace come through suffering and death. Yeah, I want peace in my life. I I might even want peace in my community, but I want to be able to bring it about in my own way. And not only that, I want to be able to define what that peace means. I want to believe I'm the captain, I'm the master. The gospel says, no, no, Jesus is the master. You want peace? Look to him. 
He's the one who controlled the events that made peace possible. So here's Jesus unquestionably affirming that he is the Messiah. He is the king in the royal line of David. And he prepares to enter Jerusalem as the king riding on a donkey, the animal of, of peace. And the disciples bring the colt to Jesus in verse 35. And they throw their, their cloaks on, on, the, on the colt, uh, making a, a saddle. And they sit Jesus on it. And, and notice the, the two responses to Jesus as he proceeds down. The, along the road drawing near on the way down the Mount of Olives. There are two responses. Praise and rejection. He draws near receiving praise. He draws near receiving rejection. First, the disciples give him praise. Verse 36 tells us that as he rode along, his disciples spread their cloaks along the road. They were giving him the red carpet treatment, if you will. They were, they were in the presence of a dignitary, one deserving honor and exaltation, but they didn't stop there. Verse 37 tells us that as he was drawing near to Jerusalem, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. The other gospel writers who write about the triumphal entry, they, they write, uh, 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 they mention the crowds while Luke only really speaks of disciples. While there were crowds of people who joined in with the multitude of disciples, I think that Luke is explicitly trying to do when he's mentioning disciples only because it was the disciples who authentically responded in praise to the great and mighty works that they had witnessed in Jesus Christ. He leaves out the crowd because the crowd is fickle. Because the crowd's saying, Hosanna today and crucify him in a few days. Luke wants us to contrast the authentic rejoicing of the disciples with the rejection by, by the Pharisees and, and Jerusalem itself. The reason that the disciples begin joyfully praising God in a loud voice as Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives is because of all the mighty works that they had seen. Jesus' whole ministry had been one continuous demonstration of God's power. When John the Baptist was put in prison and he sent out his disciples to ask Jesus whether he was the one to come or, or they should be looking for somebody else, Jesus sends word back to John in Luke 7, to 23, where he says, go and tell John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's been the testimony of Jesus' ministry and his disciples are praising God for it. Luke is saying to his community and he is saying to us that the proper response to the work of God in Jesus Christ is praise. 
Those who've seen the power of God at work in their lives and in the lives of those around them can't hold it in. They can't go day in and day out as if they've experienced nothing. Those who have been transformed by the truth and the reality of who Jesus is ought to at least sometimes be able to respond in praise and and adoration. Those who know that they know that they know that they've been delivered from the burden and the bondage of guilt and sin ought to sometimes be able to say hallelujah glory to God in the highest if you find yourself as one who has experienced the the power and the presence of of Jesus Christ there ought to be sometimes a shout of praise that comes from way way down deep in the depths of your soul because that's what people who know Jesus do they rejoice and they don't rejoice because life is now problem free and I'll no longer experience pain or sorrow but because God is at work he's at work transforming lives he's at work transforming communities because God has transformed me from a child of wrath into a child of peace and Luke says the proper response to those who know Jesus Christ is praise and rejoicing but just like we know right In our own experience, and not everybody who's confronted by Jesus responds with praise and joy. So it was in that first Palm Sunday. The disciples in their response and their praise, quote from Psalm 118, verse 26, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They they say, as we we heard this psalm being read earlier in the service, the Psalm 118, verse 26, actually says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. But the disciples recognize that Jesus is the king, so they ain't got no problem saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The imagery in that psalm, one of those psalms of ascent, is is of the king leading pilgrims into the temple and receiving a greeting of welcome from the priests at the temple, likely after some major victory. And with that imagery in the background of his making his way into Jerusalem, King Jesus is leading the pilgrims uh, uh, to the temple to be greeted and welcomed by the priests. And how much more telling is the fact then that far from welcoming him, the Pharisees reject him. They reject him because they're concerned with two things. First, they didn't want Jesus to disturb the peace. They didn't want Jesus to disturb the peace. (laughs) Irony of ironies. Jesus is the king of peace, and they're afraid that he's going to mess up the good thing they got with Rome. If the people get too excited about this so-called Messiah, Rome is going to send troops to crush us. Secondly, secondly, they, don't just, uh, they just don't believe his testimony. That it also witnesses Jesus' mighty acts, but they refuse to believe. They say to him in verse 39, Teacher, rebuke your disciples for calling you king. 
rebuke them. And Jesus said, I tell you what, if these folk were silent, the inanimate objects, the very rocks would be praising me. In other words, they are right to praise me. I'm the king who deserves to be honored and prayed and praised and, and adored. And these inanimate objects, these stones, know more than you do, Pharisees. If the people were silent, the rocks would get their shout on. Jesus doesn't let us ride on the fence. He says, I'm going to be praised. If not by you, don't worry. I ain't going to be lacking in no praise. Whether or not any of us turn to him in praise and worship, Jesus is not going to be short of praise. However, look, what the rejection by the Pharisees does is actually change the mood in the text and prepare us for this change from rejoicing to sorrow and lamentation. Because that's the last thing we see here. We see Jesus drawing near with sorrow. Verses 41 to 42 and when he drew near and saw the city, Luke says, he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known the day, on this day the things that make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. The disciples are rejoicing and the Pharisees are rejecting, but here... It's as if all of those other voices have faded into the background. It is as if everything around Jesus has gone silent. And as he is getting closer to Jerusalem, he looks at, at the city and he sees it and it breaks his heart. This is an expression of profound grief. I'm reminded of what the prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 8 and verses 18 of his prophecy when he says, My joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me. Behold, the city, uh, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded, I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. This is the sense of the burden of Jesus' heart as he sees the city. Jeremiah prophesied and saw the destruction of Jerusalem because they had rejected the Lord and the thought of it was too much for him to bear. They, the, listen, these are not crocodile tears that Jesus is shedding over the city. His heart is broken because he knows what's coming. He knows they don't under understand the time or the day of their visitation. Here is the Savior, their Savior in their midst sent to them. And yet their testimony is, we don't need a Savior like you. 
And Jesus knows that to reject him like that is not free. To reject him is costly. It means nothing short of judgment remaining under wrath and not being transformed into a child of peace. But notice this, right? He doesn't rejoice over that destruction. He mourns over it. It breaks his heart. If Jesus is the king of peace, what are the things that make for peace in this broken world? It is not a stretch, stretch, rather, nor is it hubris to say that the world does not know peace because the world does not know Jesus. The way to peace in a busted and broken world can only come through repentance and faith. What are the words we hear? We did it this morning. Why every week we confess our sin and we hear the words of assurance of pardon. And then we say, now that we are affirmed in the peace that we have with God through faith in Jesus Christ, let's get up and pass that peace to one another. That's not just a performative thing that we are doing. We are leaning into the reality that repentance and faith that brings peace with God moves us to peace with one another. We pass the peace to one another because we ain't just interested in some individual vertical peace between me and God. We want to see this peace spread from this body into this community and the whole city. See, here's the deal. Far too often, Jesus' church doesn't follow in his footsteps. Far too often, the church, as a church, we can look at our world, at our community, at our nation, and our hearts are not broken. When Jesus saw Jerusalem, it broke his heart. He cried real tears. Would that you, even you, knew the things that made for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Are we weeping? Are we weeping? Are we grieved by the fact that our community desires peace but is spiritually blinded to the fact that peace is unattainable apart from Jesus Christ? Or do I get so caught up in striving after my own comforts and pleasures and preferences that I've got a hardness in my own heart concerning the the place that God has put me? Why? Why does Grace Mosaic say our hope is to create an accessible worshiping community that people from any and every culture, socioeconomic distinction, and spiritual outlook can call home? Why do we say that? Why can we aspire to that kind of hope? Because Jesus is the king of peace and because he continues to draw near to us and to draw us near to him. And it is our desire that the spirit of God would continue to break our hearts over both the sin that's in us and the sin that is around us and not let us be satisfied with anything less than being used by him as agents of transformation in the places where he puts us. So on this Palm Sunday, when we are reminded of Jesus' declaration by his actions and words that I am the king of peace, may God work in our hearts that we may 
believe anew or believe even for the first time that he has brought peace between himself and humanity and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And may our hearts be never satisfied with keeping this peace only to ourselves. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.